Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm thrilled to be appearing with Jim Slaughter, author of the new book, Robert's Rules of Order Fast Track, the brief and easy guide to parliamentary procedure for the modern meeting. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Lee. Now, first, I'd love you to introduce yourself to people and and tell them how you got involved so deeply in parliamentary order. What made it fascinating to you and why should people be paying attention to these? My experience, Lee, was not much different than, than most people with meetings. And in fact, I'll, I'll say it was the original experience of the original Robert who wrote Robert's Rules of Order. It's been quite a few years, but in high school, I attended a, a state meeting and it followed parliamentary procedure and I intended to go to a mic and say something, and I went to the mic, and the chair told me that based on what had just happened, there was no need for me to talk because the motion had already been resolved, and I didn't understand what happened, and the people with me didn't understand what happened, and I decided at that moment that I would at least learn enough about procedure to protect my rights and and the rights of those that that were attending meetings with me. And the the more I got into it, the more interesting I found it. I, I was president of several statewide organizations as a young person. And as people found out that I was both an attorney and had some interest and experience in parliamentary procedure, like most lawyers, I started getting nudged in the direction of of procedure, which which goes very well with our practice because we have one of the larger HOA condo practices in the Carolinas. And then also I work with many national and international trade and and, uh, professional associations on their meetings. So, Jim, right off the top, let's talk about why should anyone care? Why should people pay attention to this? What function do all these rules have? There are a couple of reasons. One, there is a legal aspect of these meetings. Uh, courts have held that, that organizations meeting to transact business have to follow certain fundamental principles of procedure, like uh, was notice required of the meeting and, and was it given? Were there enough people at the meeting for it to be a legal meeting? And the fancy term for that is quorum. Uh, was there a discussion? Was there a vote taken? Was it the right vote? And if you don't follow those, you you could find out you have violated either a, a state statute or something governing at a high level. Lots of groups, of course, have bylaws or governing documents that say they will follow a particular book on parliamentary procedure. So if you've adopted a book as your parliamentary procedure and then you don't follow it, there's certainly a, an argument there's a contractual violation there. So some groups find that by not doing procedure properly, they may have not done what they thought they were doing at all, and they have to go back and do it correctly. Uh, But I would like not to put the focus on the legalities, but simply to point out that by following proper procedure, you can make meetings shorter and you can make them fair. Now, you brought up HOAs, and one of the most important things I think you state early on in your Fast Track book is you know, there's not one size fits all. You may have an HOA meeting where, you know, it's relatively a small number of people. Or like me, you may have just gotten back from attending the ABA annual meeting and sitting in on the House of Delegates where there are hundreds of people in the room. You even say that sometimes there can be literally thousands of people in a meeting. So Robert's rules of order can feel very daunting, but Can you talk about how to decide when you're meeting with a group based on size where you should be proceeding? Absolutely. And and in fact, Lee, if if you ask people what they're sure they know about parliamentary procedure, 
the thing they would most often get wrong probably is what you've just asked about is most people think there is one procedure for all groups and the procedure's the same, whether you're in a, a committee of three people or a, a homeowners association board of five, or if you're at a 6,000 person delegate assembly, it is not. Roberts recognizes that rules aren't one size fits all. Uh, just like a small meeting trying to be too formal can, can go off the tracks a large group trying to be too informal can run off the tracks. And so all parliamentary manuals that are used pretty much in the United States recognize that large meetings must be fairly formal, but smaller meetings, particularly small board meetings of fewer than about 12, should be informal. And so Roberts actually has a chapter on informal procedures for smaller boards and any size committee, but hardly anybody ever knows it because they don't read to the back of the book in section 49 where it is. But Roberts would say in small boards, the, the members can remain seated while they speak, that motions don't need seconds, that the chair can be a full participant and speak and vote on motions if the chair chooses. And so there, there is a different procedure for small groups versus large groups, and it's basically a break between informal procedure versus formal procedure. I think I'm probably not alone when I say that rules can feel intimidating to me and the 12th edition, which I guess is the most uh, recent of the Roberts Rules of Orders, is some 700 pages. And, and your, your book comes in at 173, which is fantastic. But what I found so fascinating in reading your book is that it seemed to me, just as a reader, reading what you had put down, the rules actually let you be more flexible than you can be when there's more or less chaos. It offers you options rather than necessarily forbidding everything, but lets you get on with business without being distracted. So I found that fascinating. Is that one of the things that you like about parliamentarian procedure? Absolutely. Uh, rules for meetings should be like clothes. Uh, they, should, they should be made to fit the group that they are meant to serve. Roberts makes clear that it's not the top of the food chain that, that they're can be rules specifically adopted by the group that would override Roberts and might change speaking time or 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 how long uh, how often people get to speak, and then bylaws override Roberts, state statutes override Roberts, and so at the end of the day, uh, Roberts makes very clear that a, a group can choose what procedures it wishes to adopt to govern itself. It's not that you have to follow all seven hundred and fourteen pages of the of the new Roberts. Since you mentioned it, Lee, I'll at least mention, in case anyone missed it during COVID, a, a new Roberts, the 12th edition, came out in fall of 2020. And if you look at it, as you pointed out, it has 714 pages. And you might think, wow, uh, this is smaller than the last book because the 11th edition had 716 pages. You would be wrong. And that's because the page size has gotten larger and the print has gotten smaller. So actually, the book has expanded yet again. People may wonder why Roberts changes, and it's because the, the authors tend to take into account what's going on in the world. So, for instance, the 12th edition has much more information on electronic meetings and, and how electronic meetings are different and what rules should possibly be considered for telephone meetings or for Zoom meetings or for other types of electronic gatherings or votes. And you have a chapter in your book on that as well, chapter 10, I think. I, I do because uh, Roberts came out right when the the pandemic was starting, and I'm sure it had to be finished before it happened. And so they did not have as much of a chance to elaborate. So by the time my book came out, I had already done 20 more than 1,000 person 
electronic meetings. Uh, and so I had sort of seen how it actually worked in practice. So I've tried to include in, in my book practical advice on what rules should be different, what considerations you need to make for an electronic meeting versus an in-person meeting, because while a virtual meeting can get the work done, it has a different feel than an in-person meeting. And, and a group just needs to be aware that there are differences between in-person and, and virtual meetings, just as there are differences between gathering in person and instead having the same conversation virtually. One of your observations in that chapter was that it seems that sometimes in virtual meetings, there can be a, a loss of collegiality. So what do you suggest for people who are trying to address that or take into account the fact that there may be people who are acting up more than they would if there was an in-person meeting? Well, and, and at this point, of course, large groups are, are trying to decide, will we be meeting again in person? Will we be meeting virtually? Or will we do some hybrid option? I just did a, a 6,000-person hybrid meeting in which everyone that was participating virtually could do everything that anyone at the meeting could do. And there are absolutely wonderful benefits to virtual meetings, including that you could be having dinner with your family two minutes before you decide to log on to the meeting. And, and because of family commitments or, or travel, uh, some people might not be able to attend an in-person meeting, but you are right. Uh, my experience so far, this may change as we get more used to the technology and as the technology advances, but there is a different dynamic to many virtual meetings, particularly large ones, where you have people say things online that they would simply not say if they were in, in person or uh, sometimes votes go in, in strange ways, and I, th I think it's the difference with being at a meeting and the dynamics of people being around you and sitting with you and you all making decisions versus you just sitting in your living room and voting something up or down based on, on your feeling at the, at the time. So the virtual meetings absolutely can work, but people should just take into consideration what is the purpose of the meeting. Are we just conveying information or do we lo want lots of interaction? If we're going to have lots of interaction, what technology are we going to use that allows people to speak? How long will people be able to speak? Do we, do we want seconds to motions to have to be made online since those can easily take two minutes to get someone online just to simply say second? Uh, how long will people get to speak virtually, which is usually shorter than they would speak at an in-person meeting? And how are we going to take votes? And how are we going to be transparent? And I say transparent because at an in-person meeting, if someone is upset about something and they walk to a microphone and they stand there, everyone in the room knows they are standing there. In a virtual meeting, uh, frequently you don't know where anyone is in, in line or if they even are in line. And for that matter, if someone is rude or disruptive on a virtual meeting, there's certainly the temptation just to mute them or disconnect them from the meeting, which could not happen at an in-person meeting. So again, Virtual meetings can work, but just to be aware that the dynamics are different and some thought, as I, as I talk about in that chapter, some thought should be given to everything surrounding the virtual meeting. One of the things you point out about hybrid meetings was that, uh, you know, there is often a chat function, a chat room function, when you have a virtual audience uh, participating. But if you're in person in a hybrid meeting, you don't know what's happening in the chat room and that that's something that the organizers need to take into account so that everyone can participate equally. I thought that was a, a great observation. I've seen that several times where some people were participating virtually on their computers so they could see what was going on, but other people were just participating through their phones because they were somewhere where the technology or the bandwidth would not allow them to, to have full feature. So they're just listening to the debate. 
And then you have this chat feature over on the side, like so many online platforms do. And there had begun just a discussion of, you know, I'm, I'm making up this discussion, but isn't this the stupidest idea ever? Uh, why do you <laughs> Why do you think Lee recommended this? I don't know. Do you Do you see what Lee's wearing? Uh, and and the discussion just went off on things that, of course, the people who were on their phones were not aware of at all. And of course, there shouldn't be two debates going on. The debate should be what people say at the meeting, not what some people who are participating on their laptops can type into a virtual setting. So I see some groups either turn off the chat feature during certain types of meetings, or the rules just make very clear that the chat feature is for certain things like getting recognized or uh, saying that you are having technical difficulties and how do I get help, but it is not a place to have a shadow debate going on while the debate is actually going on during the meeting. So we've brought up people acting out, uh, people being rude or, or not following procedure. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has seen a lot of video on Twitter, on Facebook, on various social media that comes from local school board meetings or local council meetings that have gone off the rails, gotten out of hand. And I just would love to hear from you, what do you think are the common elements that either allow discussions like this to get off track or that can be used to bring order again when someone who is not a board member is is acting out or is behaving in a way that is not allowing the meeting to go on? I'm certainly not going to fault how anyone has run a meeting over the last couple of years uh, because <laughs> it has just been contentious times. I mean, there, people have just been more contentious both inside and outside of meetings, but there is no question but that I have seen a lot of people at meetings saying and doing things that I would not have seen more than two years ago. Uh, with that in mind, I would say, Lee, that if if you follow some fundamental principles of parliamentary procedure, again, I'm, I'm never saying anybody needs to read all 714 pages of the new Robertson would not recommend that. That's sort of the goal of my two books coming out this year is that here's some, some information on Roberts without reading the whole thing. But there are some fundamental principles in Roberts that, that will help meetings run better. For instance, in Roberts, uh, all remarks are addressed to the chair. You do not allow people to get into a back and forth uh, direct with each other, and the chair would immediately stop that. In Roberts, any person's allowed to speak once, and then they are not allowed to speak again if there is anyone who wishes to speak a first time. Once a person has spoken a first time, if there is an opportunity for them to speak a second time because others have had a chance to speak a first time, they can then speak a second time. But then they are done with that particular motion for the day. They don't get to just keep speaking over and over again. Under Roberts, there is supposed to be an attempt to alternate debate pro and con so that there is an opportunity for both sides to be heard, which people view as a, a fairness factor. Under Roberts, there is a debate limit on any individual person speaking for 10 minutes, although I will say that most groups adopt a rule that, that often limits that to five minutes or, or three minutes. And finally, I, I would just say that as a theme, people tend to act up at meetings when they have a feeling that the meeting is not going to be run fairly, that it's either not been called properly or that they are not going to have an opportunity to speak or that somehow the vote's not going to be taken correctly. If the tone is set right for most meetings, that, that this is going to be a fair meeting, that I'm going to call on people as chair, and I'm going to keep calling on people, and we're going to alternate pro and con, and everybody's going to get, get to speak once before anybody speaks a second time, and once debate is over, we are going to take a vote, and the chips are just going to fall where they, they fall based on who has a majority. 
uh, people tend to behave better at meetings if they think they're going to have a, a fair shot at convincing people of their, their position. The acting up tends to happen when there's a feeling that something at the meeting is going to be done unfairly. You mentioned that the chair is the one who needs to step in and set the tone. I think that in many smaller groups, the person who ends up being selected as chair, it may feel like a little bit of a default or someone was just willing to do it, much like, oh, who's going to be the secretary? Oh, I'm willing. But while reading your book, I thought, wow, you know, there there actually do seem to be characteristics that a successful chair would need to have. Could you talk a little bit about that? What have you seen are the characteristics of someone who is can be really successful at being the chair of a meeting? Or, you know, what are some common mistakes that chairs tend to make? Certainly. And, and there is a chapter in the book on, on chair, but some of it comes to personality and some of it comes just to having a basic understanding of what needs to be done in terms of emotion. Because people tend to get upset when they feel like a emotion's not being handled properly or that the chair has no idea of what they are doing. That, that tends to lead to disruption at any meeting. There are a couple of pieces to it, Lee, and in no particular order. Some of it is personality, as I already said. If, if the chair is conveying a sense that this is going to be a fair meeting, I'm here to run the meeting. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to be in the middle of the debate arguing against people who get up to speak on things uh, in, a larger, in a larger group. Uh, and there's going to be a vote taken, and the majority is going to, to get its way. Other traits of good chairs, under Roberts, uh, when a motion is made, and then a chair should know for most motions, you have to ask for a second, and then the motion proceeds. Normally, at that point, the chair should explain exactly what the motion is that's going to be discussed by the group. And then discussion happens. And at the end of discussion, either because there's a vote to close debate or, or because there's nobody else who wants to talk, the chair is supposed to explain then, okay, what is it we are about to vote on? And then the chair takes the vote, either by a voice, all those in favor say aye, all those opposed say no, or by hand or by standing. And then the chair is supposed to announce the result of the vote. And what does the vote mean? We just adopted this motion. and This means that we are now going to buy a copy of Robert's Rules of Order Fast Track for each of our board members. So a good chair is constantly telling the members, what are we about to do? What are we about to talk about? What have we just talked about and what are we now going to vote on? And what was the vote and what were the consequences of the vote? So while that might sound re repetitive, there's nothing worse than being in a meeting and thinking, I don't know what is going on. Or even worse, I don't know what we just voted on. I, I thought we were voting to close debate and we just spent $10,000 to renovate the, the, the headquarters lobby. Uh, that's a bad situation for a member to be in. So a, a good chair should at all times be explaining where we are in the parliamentary process, assisting the members in, in getting where they want to be by their majority vote, and generally being pleasant. Uh, there's no reason for a chair to be unpleasant because, again, their role is to help the assembly get where it wants to be. And as you pointed out, too, often, you know, you're in a, a scenario where the chair is the only one with a microphone that you can be certain can be heard by everyone in the room. So some of that repetitiveness, it may be the first time that someone is hearing what uh, someone rose to, to speak about. You asked early on, you know, things that people get wrong about meetings. And another one I'll mention is that the, there's a belief out there that the chair rules the meeting. And, and that would also be untrue because the, the chair is the, the servant of the assembly, not the master of the assembly. And by that, I mean, basically, the chair can do what the assembly allows. 
And that's because if someone feels that the rules have been violated or the chair has done something wrong under parliamentary procedure, they can raise a point of order, which is their way of saying, I think the rules have been violated. The, the chair would make a determination of whether that point of order is well taken or not well taken. But then uh, the final decision is made by the body. And that's because uh, one member and another member could appeal from the decision of the chair. And by majority vote, the body will decide, was the chair correct or incorrect? And that's because at the end of the day, the the body, the assembly, is the ultimate decider of all procedural issues, not the, not the chair. So we've mentioned that there is this 12th edition book that is 714 pages. What was the reason you chose to write Robert's Rules of Order Fast Track? And when would you suggest someone pick up Robert's Rules of Order Fast Track versus you know, a more encyclopedic version of Robert's Rules of Order or the Robert's Rules of Order 12th edition. Robert's Rules of Order, including the 12th edition, is a a fabulous resource. It's a great book. I mean, one of the reasons it's 714 pages long is because there's something in there about everything. I mean, there's a chapter for every instance that can occur at a meeting. But one of the problems with that is that means it's a it's a pretty tough read. And I'll mention, because so many people are surprised by this, they assume that Roberts is a book on motions, you know, motions that can come up at meetings. It is not. I mean, motions only take up about a quarter of Roberts. The rest of the book is a wonderful resource. There's a there's a chapter on tips for the inexperienced presiding officer. If you never run a meeting, here's some tips. There's a there's a chapter on how board procedure is different than large meeting procedure on how to take minutes. There's a set of sample minutes of how different committees function. And again, it's a wonderful resource. But to say I'm going to pick up Roberts and read it from beginning to end is a little bit like saying I'm going to read the encyclopedia. You could do that, but it it would be better probably to do a a, a Google search, for instance, uh, since maybe people don't have paper encyclopedias anymore, to look up a particular topic in Roberts on this particular motion you're wondering about, but then not to keep reading for the rest of the book. So, so many people have told me they have a copy of Roberts, but they've either never read it or they've only read a piece of it or they started it and didn't understand it. The, both Roberts Rules of Order Fast Track, as well as notes and comments on Roberts Rules uh, Fifth Edition, which is coming out later this year, both are designed to give people enough information to know how to function in a meeting, to run a meeting, uh, what motions are most likely to come up in a meeting. And, and it tends to be about 10 that would ever come up at a meeting, not 80 plus, which you could find in Roberts. So all of the books that I've written have been intended to make Roberts accessible to people, which in these contentious days, I think is more important than ever for everybody to know, particularly attorneys. And also importantly, both of your new books would be able to easily fit in a carry-on. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, they yes they would. So the first book of yours that I, I read was Roberts Rules of Order Fast Track, but For listeners who are hearing this after September 1st, you also have a second book coming out. Could you talk a little bit about that one? Certainly. And and since the readers wouldn't know either one, they they complement each other. I think the books go well together, but they have a different purpose and they sort of have a different audience. Robert's Rules of Order Fast Track is really designed on what do you need to know within the next day or two about how to function in a meeting that's coming up in a couple of days. It's focused very much on board procedure, but then it gets into the motions that might come up at a larger meeting, but it really focuses just on the motions that you're likely to see at a meeting and not any motion that could come up at a meeting. In contrast, notes and comments on Robert's Rules 5th edition 
is a Q&A on, on the motions in Roberts. So it's for people who want to know more about procedure. They may have read the fast track guide and say, I'd like to learn more about procedure. Notes and comments goes into detail on the motions. It gives uh, page numbers and, and paragraph numbers of where to go into Roberts to find everything there is to know about that particular issues. And it tends to be the questions that I hear the most about parliamentary procedure. So it'll have a question. Can, can you yell out question during a meeting to close debate? And then the answer would be no, that it's just a motion like any other motion. You have to get recognized by the chair and you have to make the motion. Is the motion to close debate debatable? Well, well, no, because we don't want to debate whether or not we don't want to debate. So the motion to close debate is not debatable, but it does take a two-thirds vote. And for each motion in Roberts, it just goes through the Q&A of what I most often hear. And then there are notes that sort of take you through the history of parliamentary procedure. And a lot of people don't know it, but Roberts is not the only game in town. It is a book on parliamentary procedure, uh, but there are a number of books on parliamentary procedure, and some groups don't use Roberts at all. So in the notes, particularly, notes and comments compares what is the practice in some of these other books that other organizations use versus how it is done in Roberts. And that's there because I think it makes you actually think about why does Roberts do it a particular way? And if you understand why Roberts does something, you'll tend to remember forever how it's done. While I was reading about Roberts' Rules of Order, it really struck me how much it reminded me of dictionaries and lexicographers because there's one man's name on this title, Henry M. Robert, was the first person to write a Robert's Rules of Order. But you mentioned that there have been 12 editions and there are numerous other books getting into different elements of Robert's Rules of Order. And I'd love to ask you about the parliamentarians who do this because often their work is almost invisible to the reader. You know, people will flip open a dictionary and say, oh, well, the dictionary says this word means this, and here is the definition, without thinking about, you know, these were not rules handed down from on high. There were people in the background arguing about, coming to a consensus about what this means, what this should be. So can you tell me a little bit about parliamentarians, the people who have been involved in taking the very first Robert's Rules of Order to where it is today. Certainly. And, and if you go back uh, all the way to the beginning of the United States, you'll find that like most things, Thomas Jefferson was involved. He wrote the, the first major parliamentary manual in the United States, which is, is still used uh, in the United States Senate and, and by some states, uh, Jefferson's manual. Uh, but if you move into the late 1800s, Robert was an interesting fellow, Henry Martin Robert. He was from Robertville, South Carolina. His, his father was an abolitionist Baptist minister, minister and, and Robert was an officer in the Union during the Civil War and was in Massachusetts and was asked to preside over a meeting dealing with the city's defense against the South. And he basically thought, how complicated can this be? I mean, I should know how to run a meeting. So he said he prayed to Providence that everybody would behave. <laughs> they did They did not behave. Uh, he said it was the worst experience of his life, and he would never again be involved in a meeting until he understood more about parliamentary procedure. So he went out and found all the books that were available at the time, and there were some, and he basically decided to write his own, which was intended to be a, a pocket manual so small you could just carry it in your pocket, and it would tell you how to, to, to behave in a 
a volunteer-type organization, because most books prior to that had really been written more for, for legislative bodies and not for, for citizens. Uh, but by the 1800s, people were starting to gather into groups and associations and, and meet in different ways. And so his book was intended to help them understand procedure. Robert eventually, of course, passed away. Uh, but a foundation was set up, including family members, uh, that has continued uh, publishing new Robert's Rules of Order to this, to this day. And they tend to look around and see what's happening with meetings and how things may have changed or need to change. And that's where the, the particular changes come from. Since you asked, Lee, about parliamentarians generally, I will mention there are two national organizations that, that train and certify parliamentarians, the National Association of Parliamentarians and the American Institute of Parliamentarians. Uh, both deal with different parliamentary books. They have uh, training programs. They have publications. Uh, they also both do um, meetings and training uh, of parliamentarians, and they give certifications of parliamentary procedure at, at different levels of experience. And so most people who are active in parliamentary procedure tend to be involved either in the, the NAP or the AIP. And since this is an attorney podcast, I'll also mention there is an American College of Parliamentary Lawyers and it consists of attorneys who tend to have to deal with procedure. And when you think about it, that's just about every attorney. And that's because you can be an attorney dealing with procedure because you are a governmental attorney. If you're dealing with school boards or city councils or legislative bodies, if you work with houses of worship, they, of course, meet and transact business in meetings, as do nonprofit corporation attorneys, as do homeowner and condominium association attorneys, as do union attorneys. And so I'm, I'm constantly contacted by attorneys who said they did not think they were getting involved in parliamentary procedure in their particular practice area, but somehow they have ended up in it and they would like to learn more about it. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, I'll ask Jim Slaughter about meeting minutes and where he's seen them go right and wrong. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library with Lee Rawls. I'm speaking with Jim Slaughter. So, Jim, meeting minutes. I think that there's a lot of confusion about how meeting minutes should be structured, what should be included, and you lay it out very well, I think, in this book. But for my listeners, can you talk a little bit about that? What makes a good set of meeting minutes? 
how can you avoid getting in legal trouble by having insufficient meeting minutes? I'd just love to hear all of your tips and, and tricks with this. The main tip, Lee, is that minutes are supposed to be a record of what was done at a meeting, not what was said at a meeting. And so many people out there taking minutes seem to think they are supposed to be trying to write down everything that everybody says, and they'll try and get the wording, and it's almost a verbatim transcript. And that is what it would be if you try to take down everything that happened. It would be a verbatim transcript. And that's perfectly fine. I, almost all of my national associations have court reporters who do take down every single word, but that's different than minutes. Minutes is just a, a short summary uh, of a number of things which I describe in the book, which is basically uh, what was the meeting, when was it, where was it, usually who was there, and then there's usually one paragraph for each motion that was made, and did the motion get adopted or was it rejected, and then what time did the meeting end? So proper minutes tend to be very short. Uh, you can easily have a, a set of minutes from a meeting that lasted two hours fit on a single sheet of paper, double-spaced with large margins, if you're following the usual rule. And, and then, of course, I do have sometimes people say, well, we want more in our minutes. So we try to put what people said. And as you noted, that almost always leads to trouble. And that's because at the next meeting, when you get up and say what the minutes are, Lee will say, look, I, I didn't say what you put in the minutes and, and you've defamed me or, or you're slandering me or libeling me based on, on how you phrase this. And I'm insulted and we need to change the minutes. And, and then I stand up and say, Lee, I was at the last meeting and, and you didn't say it half as good as what they put in the minutes. And then we have a fight about what you said at the meeting when, when we don't care what you said at the meeting. We really just care about was the motion adopted or was it rejected? And so the, the main tip would be Robert's style of minutes is what was done at a meeting, not what was said at a meeting. And then the other place that I see meetings, uh, meeting minutes sometimes take too long is the, the resolution of minutes at a meeting should take about 12 seconds. And sometimes they seem to take a lot longer than that. And that's because if you have done your minutes properly and they really are a record of what was done at the meeting, you should, of course, gotten them in everybody's hands before we actually considered it at the next meeting. We don't need to read the minutes out loud. I mean, everybody got a copy of it by email or it's been handed out to everybody. And then, and then good presiding officers tend to use, this is slightly different than what's in the new Roberts, but good presiding officers tend to use a method in Roberts, which I would recommend for anything, uh, which is called unanimous consent or general consent. And using general consent or unanimous consent, the chair just asks, after having asked everybody to take a look at the minutes, is there any objection to approving the minutes as, as written? And that little phrase, is there any objection to, uh, is called unanimous consent or general consent. And, and it basically is a motion and a second and the debate and the vote all wrapped up in that one little phrase. Because if the chair says, is there any objection to approving the minutes as written and nobody objects, you're done. You just adopted the minutes. And, and good presiding officers use unanimous consent or general consent on anything that's non-controversial. Is there any objection to taking a 10-minute recess? Is there, is there any objection to closing the debate? And so both in minutes and anything that is non-controversial, good presiding officers will use unanimous consent to get through non-controversial things so that you'll have more time for controversial things. And if somebody objects, it doesn't mean you don't do it. If somebody objects, then you just slow things down and the chair would get a motion to approve the minutes and get a second and, and take a, a vote on it. Again, that's slightly different than what the new Roberts describes for minutes, but that's how almost all groups do their minutes because they like to have the members sign off on the, the minutes. I'll also mention, since you asked, uh, Roberts would say that annual meetings don't approve minutes because the group may be completely different or they certainly won't remember what happened a year before. So Roberts has alternative means of approving minutes for, for groups that meet 
as infrequently as, as once a year or, or farther out than that. So lots of stuff on minutes, but the, the main theme is minutes should be a record of what was done, not what was, was said. And you avoid putting in things like this person said that or any kind of personal commentary on what happened at the meeting. Yeah, you mentioned you'd seen personal commentary like, you know, so-and-so unwisely raised this motion, uh, entered into to formal minutes, which you can't do that. You gotta, you gotta stop yourself. So you brought up that, you know, minutes are one of the things that you can hand out a copy of so that no one has to stand up there and read it. Another thing to hand out, if you're doing it right, in my opinion, is the agenda. And you go into the agenda. How do you write an agenda that helps keep a meeting on track and keeps everyone in the know, especially when you've got these meetings that are, you know, two-day long meetings. I'm always fascinated by when I go to the ABA House of Delegates, the agendas they put out, I think to myself, there's no way they can get through all of these things, but they're able to. Uh, and they, they you know, stick to rules of order that allow them to do that. One of the reasons they probably get through the agenda is because they have an agenda. And, and the reason I say that, as I do in the book, is an agenda is worth its weight in gold. You know, there's really, there's really nothing worse than going to a meeting and kind of wondering, do we, have, do we have one thing to handle or do we have 10 things to handle? And, and good presiding officers, again, I, I have a whole chapter on tips for presiding officers, but good presiding officers tend to try to give people a feel for how long will a meeting last. And that's because you'll have better attendance if somebody knows if a meeting's going to be an hour and a half versus, well, it might be an hour and a half or it might be six hours. We really don't have any idea how long it's going to go until we show up. An agenda forces the group, or at least the chair, to kind of get an idea of what do we expect to actually come up at this meeting in the way of motions or committee reports. It often usually requires the chair to contact committee chairs to say, do you have a report? If you have a report, is it for information only, in which case we're just going to say thank you at the end of it? Or is it for action? Are we going to have a motion? What's the motion likely to be? What, what other items do we expect? I will tell you, in terms of myths about meetings, on almost every agenda out in the world today, you'll find a category of old business, which is, which is not a category in Roberts. You will never find the phrase old business in Roberts. And that's because it makes it sound like this is the part of the meeting where we will talk about any old thing that we have ever talked about in the history of our association. And that's not what it is. It's really unfinished business. It's business we did not complete at our last meeting. The chair never needs to ask if there's unfinished business because the chair will know if there's unfinished business and go ahead and put that on the agenda. There are three items that we did not finish at our last board meeting, so they are unfinished. And by having the agenda and, and listing an order to it, I, as an attendee at that meeting, have a better idea of it's appropriate for us to spend an hour discussing the first item on an agenda with, with 15 things. We might decide to do that, but by having an agenda, at least I have the ability to decide where time should be spent if I see what else needs to be talked about. And, and I will mention, since, since it's in the book, you know, there are different types of agendas. You can have a chair who does an agenda and it's just handed out to everybody and it's just an informal agenda and we don't have to follow it, but it gives us an idea of what's going to happen at the meeting. But lots and lots of attorneys who, who advise school boards, city councils, county commissions uh, know that frequently uh, many governmental bodies and, and other groups will adopt an agenda at the, at the beginning of their meeting. And the reason they do that is not only does it lock in the order a business, but it locks in the items of business. If if I, Jim, at the meeting decide, you know, we all talk about this other thing. If I just want to raise something for the first time, it, it likely would not be admitted without a vote to change the agenda because we've already decided 
what's going to be on the agenda. So you don't have to adopt an agenda, but but certain groups do. But absolutely, I do recommend, as, as you noted, an agenda is worth spending the time on. Now, Jim, I often like to ask authors to read a short passage from their book to give people a feel for the language. And just for anyone listening, this is not a dry book. I think you write in a very conversational tone. So I want to make sure that people know that. Do you have a short passage you could read for us? Certainly. Let me let me just open to the beginning of the book where I, I first just say what parliamentary procedure is and what parliamentary procedure is not. And, and then the next heading is what rules should you follow? And, and I'll read that part. You might think the question of what rules should be followed in your organization would be fairly complicated, but it's not. There's a very specific legal answer. It depends. Surely you've dealt with attorneys before. The reason it depends is because different groups use different levels of procedure. While it can sometimes be more complicated, the general rule is that larger groups use more formal procedures, while smaller groups use less formal procedures. These levels of formality make sense. For instance, I serve as parliamentarian at several conventions that meet with thousands of delegates attending each year. In an effort to be fair, the rules of large conventions tend to be very formal. No delegate speaks without first being recognized by the chair. In fact, the floor microphone isn't even turned on until the member is given permission to speak. Once a delegate starts to speak, they have two minutes under the convention rules. At the end of two minutes, the microphone is turned off. No one speaks a second time as long as anyone who has not yet spoken wishes to speak a first time. While such rules might seem strict, they are necessary to be fair. After all, you can't easily have a conversation with a thousand people. On the other hand, how formal do you want to be in your small board or committee? Boards often have only four or five members. A committee can be as small as one person. How formal do you want to be in your committee of one? I move to take a 10-minute bathroom break. Oh, no, there's no one to second my motion. So that should give you some idea of of the the tone of the book. Lastly, I'd love to talk to you about the people who are well-meaning but derail meetings. Uh, We mentioned before there are people with ill intent who show up to a meeting who, you know, want to cause a ruckus. But then there are people who, you know, whether it's through nervousness, through general personality, you know, maybe they're a talker. They, they have all the right intentions, but they are stopping us from getting to what we need to get to. What are your tips for helping meetings keep on track when you're dealing with someone like that, who, who has no ill intent, but is stopping us from advancing the meeting? Big difference, as you note, Lee, between ill intent and someone who is, is just continuing to speak. And, and I, again, have to make the distinction we did at the beginning that there is a huge distinction between larger meetings and smaller meetings, particularly smaller boards. And the reason why is boards are intended to talk stuff out. So frequently in a board, you would, you would have people who are going to speak longer or more times than you would at a large delegate meeting. And that's proper procedurally uh, because the board's small. It can, it can do that. On the other hand, at an annual meeting of a homeowners association with hundreds of people, you have to be more formal. And, and we talked early on about how some aspects of formality will help your meetings stay on track. For instance, in a large business meeting that's being formal, and by large, I really mean more than about 12 people, in a larger meeting that is being formal, there's not supposed to be a discussion of anything on the floor without there first being a motion. And that's because a, a, a business meeting is not open mic night where anybody gets to just bring up anything they want, talk about anything. That's not the way that agendas tend to be structured. And if you have a good agenda and someone brings up something at the wrong time, uh, normally the the chair would nicely call the comments to order. The the person's not out of order, 
unless they're like on the table and they have a lampshade on their head, their comments might be out of order. Their motion might be out of order. They might be out of order at this time because we're discussing the budget. You know, we're discussing the budget and we have to restrict discussion to the budget. If you follow those other rules we talked about in formal procedure, which is you get to talk fairly un uninterrupted for some amount of time according to your rules. Other people aren't allowed to interrupt you. But once you're done speaking, you're done. We'll call on somebody else for a first time. And you're not going to be allowed to talk a second time until everybody's had a first time. And if you're allowed to speak a second time, you are done with that motion for the day. You will not be speaking a third time on that particular motion for the day. And if, if someone is rude or, or interrupts someone else or starts making comments that are not germane to the topic we're discussing, the chair is supposed to nicely call that person to order by reminding them what we're talking about and, and to restrict their comments to, to what we are discussing. So, so there are a number of default, easy things for chairs to learn to help keep meetings on track. And then you can slide into those more serious issues you talked about, that if someone is if someone is intentionally disrupting a meeting or they're actually causing problems, the chair might have to call them to order. Or, as I discuss in the book, the chair should always be looking for ways to de-escalate the situation. You know, in, in olden times, uh, which I remember, by the way, but in olden times, uh, you would have conventions where sometimes delegates, if they misbehave, they would be physically removed from the meeting. They would be taken out by the sergeant arms to the outside of the meeting. And, and you just don't tend to see that much anymore. And that's because in today's world and with today's contentiousness, with everybody having a, a, a cell phone with a lawyer on speed dial, uh, people tend to be looking for ways to de-escalate uh, confrontation. So if something really happens that appears to be a disruption at the meeting while the chair can call it to order and can try to, to fix it by talking to the member, if that doesn't do the job, there are a number of things the chair could do. The chair could call a recess to let things calm down. The chair could call a recess and go talk to the member about what's really going on and why are they, they so upset about this. The chair could call a recess and find a friend of the, of the member and go with the friend and talk to the member. Or, or the chair might decide it's time to have someone move to adjourn the meeting and we'll deal with this outside of the meeting or, or next time. So it is important to try and distinguish whether someone is intentionally trying to cause problems at the meeting or if it's just someone who, with good intentions, is disrupting the meeting. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us on this episode to talk about Robert's Rules of Order Fast Track. If people wanted to pick up either of your books or go to your website, uh, you have some free resources, including a very helpful chart that you include at the end of uh, Robert's Rules of Order Fast Track. Where should they go? The books are pretty much findable anywhere. I mean, certainly one is from Penguin, and so it's, it tends to be that both books are available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, online bookstores, physical bookstores, and of course, they're available electronically from all, all the places that sell electronic books. And as, as you mentioned, if, if there's any trouble finding it, I've tried to put information on my website at www.jimslaughter.com that's all free. There, there are hundreds of articles there. There are parliamentary cheat sheet guides to the different parliamentary books that are used by most organizations. There's a monthly brain teaser. And so if people just want more information but don't want the books, uh, they can certainly go to the website and find lots of information. And I'd encourage, again, for attorneys, because as I mentioned earlier, either with our clients or my experience is attorneys are asked to serve on boards of nonprofits and charitable bodies all the time. And so anyone who serves on a board or a commission or with a, a charity uh, should learn enough about procedure to, to at least get done what they wish done. So I, I would highly encourage everybody to learn a bit about parliamentary procedure. 
Well, thank you to Jim Slaughter for appearing on this episode of the Modern Law Library, and thank you to you, my listeners. If you have a book that you would like me to consider featuring in a future episode, you can always email me at books at ABAjournal.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. 